0: For those of you that are subscribed to our YouTube channel, you've probably seen uh, the title of our message today. We're going to be giving a biblical response to homosexuality and the LGBT plus movement. I think it's important that we properly identify what the scripture says. Look at what is said regarding the proper idea of sexuality uh, without trying to condemn people past what the word of God has already clearly said. I think it's important that when we think about how we're going to talk to people, we think about just that. I think it's very sad. Boy, there's just a lot going on here right now. Are we there? Okay, very good. I think it's very uh, sad that there's a lot of, especially young men who are hotheads, please do not misunderstand what I mean by that. That's exactly what I mean. That get in pulpits and condemn people without ever giving them the gospel. I have heard so many messages like what we're going to preach this morning given from a position that would have to demand the homosexual turn from their sins in order to be saved. That would be the only response that someone would get from that. Or I have heard pastors say, well, excuse me, they're not pastors. Like I said, they're young men who stand in pulpits and they say things like if they saw a homosexual and had it their way, they would kill them. They would, there, there's no mercy. There is a very... Uh, fast-growing movement in the new international or new independent, excuse me, new independent Fundamental Baptist movement that teaches things like if you have committed the act of homosexuality, then you are a reprobate and you cannot be saved. That's limiting the grace of God, folks. The grace of God means He can save anybody, Amen. and if He can save me, He can save the homosexual. And it's so important that we recognize these things, and we have to be careful that we don't just totally throw away the sinner because of their sin. You and I have sin that we brought in today that the Bible very strictly condemns. And let me tell you, the other side of the argument, the pro-homosexual movement, they have heard these things. I have a, a paper that I'm going to read from. It's about four pages. We're not going to read all of it, <laughs> rest assured. But I've highlighted about four sections that I want to talk about. Three of them will give you the pro-homosexual Explanation of scripture. You need to know those things because that's where this movement is coming from. My plea is that people would not depend on themselves, but put their trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's how we're going to see real change. That's how we're going to see people one to Christ. I had to consult with Trent and David because they're our internet guys and say, I hope we don't get absolutely blacklisted just because of the title of this video. It's a possibility that we will. That's how hotly debated this topic is. My generation, as far as pastoral teachers and leaders, they, we stay away from this stuff because there has been such a poor job done in the past of a proper explanation. So I'm not going to get on the pulpit today. You don't want to see that. Neither do I. I'm going to stand here, not here. But I'm not going to rant and rave and tell you what you've already heard. We're going to go sensibly, logically through the Scriptures. We're going to hear the arguments We're going to let the scripture speak for itself. But maybe you're asking, why does there need to be a response? Well, there's three reasons, uh, especially for the response being now. I told you the Tribulation Trouble series went two sermons over, so I was hoping to get this in the month of June, so there would be a discussion, but we didn't get to it. So the month of July is just as good. But I saw, especially this year and last year, there have been major strides in the culture war. Almost all of the Republican uh, hopefuls that are running right now trying to, you know, become the representative for the party, they're all running on the cultural war. Uh, It is real. I think we all saw it this summer, did we not? Um, You can remember the Bud Light situation, which they are still, they're giving away free beer now, which is, (laughs) companies don't do that. Um... Target suffering billions of dollars in losses. Uh, and, and let me just say this, folks. Corporations do not care about people. They care about the dollar. Uh, and that's why a lot of what Target did was move the pride stuff to the back of the store. Why? We're not making money. They don't care about the pride movement. No matter what color their logo chains in the month of June or what their higher-ups may say, they want your money. And we have seen when people who stand for biblical truth stop, thank God for capitalism, when they stop spending their money in these places, all of a sudden they get a little squirmy. Why? They're not getting money. So then they're going to start changing their stance. But there were major strides in the culture of war this year. If you remember that we're coming for your children chant, that took, at least this country, and I know modern countries as well, took them by storm. This was not the first time that that chant has ever been said. As a matter of fact, in 2021, there was, or maybe it was 2018, I I don't recall, there was a gay men's choir that uh, they specifically sang about how they want to convert children into this ideology. It's very interesting that we see this happen, and for a long time we've known that it's there, but I think this past two years it's really ramped itself up. There's now a active push to teach this type of lifestyle to children in young primary school. When we look at what the pride flag represents, it represents a person's sexual choices, okay? If there was, let let me just say, if there was a straight flag, it would not be appropriate to put a banner up in an elementary school classroom that says, this is how your teacher prefers to have sex. That's inappropriate, But when it comes to the pride movement, that's totally appropriate. As a matter of fact, we need to teach and encourage our kids. You can see how it's not just that they want to write to marriage. It's not just that they want to be in the discussion. There's an envelope that is being pushed. And if we, as biblical believers, do not know how to stand on the word, we will be overcome by this. So that leads me to my second point, which I've seen a weak response from church leaders. I have seen in the United Methodist Church alone the absolute destruction of anything from God's Word being holy and true. I've said this before, and I'll say it again for the sake of our discussion today. The United Methodist Church, especially with the progressive side, puts the Word of God into three buckets. There's the timeless truth bucket, which says whatever God says in this verse or passage, it's timeless truth. Nothing can change it. There's a second bucket that says... Not relevant for today, relevant for that time. And we're going to look at that argument, especially as we conclude towards the end of the study this morning. But they say, well, it was relevant for that time. All good. Very good. Thank you. It was relevant for that time, but now it's not relevant anymore. Then they have a third bucket that says this passage, this Bible verse should be completely removed. That's a, da- that's a very dangerous slope because at what point does murder become something that is not uh, culturally, or excuse me, that is culturally accepted now? I mean, you see how this can happen. How about we just let God's word say what it says, and man has the choice to obey it or disobey it. Amen? I think that'd be a good place to stand on. But I saw churches specifically in, I've I've watched meetings of special council meetings in churches where there is a totally lack, there's, there's, There's a lack of any kind of standing on God's word. And it's destroying churches. Because pastors are saying, it's not a real issue. It's not a real issue. It is a real issue. This is not something that is in a fringe part of the northern part of our states. It's everywhere right now. And we've got to be careful. I went to summer camp every year, I went to the Museum of Science and Industry, to Lowry Park, which is now called Tampa Zoo. I went to all these different places as a kid, and I would be there for a week and come home, you know, and it was a lot of fun. We're hearing now of kids coming back from summer camps like that, and they're being exposed to what a trans person is, what it is to be gay. That was never a discussion on the rock-climbing wall at the Jewish Community Center where I was for, you know, I, I spent probably four summers there. There was never a discussion. I never looked at a second grader and wondered, I wonder what his sexuality is. That's wrong. Well, today, it's wrong for you to tell someone who wants to do that to somebody that that's wrong. What's happened. We have weak responses from spiritual leaders. And by the way, speaking the truth in love does not mean that you have to be without offense. You can say things very clearly and let it sit. And folks, Stephen did the same thing. He said, you're stiff-necked, you're hard of hearing. Oh, whoa, he shouldn't have said that. It got him killed. He spoke the truth of those men. And as a matter of fact, if you study that passage in... Acts chapter 7, the response of those that listened to Stephen, they were cut to the heart. So they knew, they felt that weight of the word. And what, how did they respond? Closed their ears, gnashed their teeth, and they killed him. Is that Stephen's fault? No. Who's going to give vengeance for Stephen? Stephen, he's going to come back? We have to give vengeance for Stephen now? No, vengeance is mine, saith who? Uh, Lord, you serve him, you do what's right by him. And he'll take care of everything else. So I'm not going to stand here as the Lord's representative and condemn people past what the Word already says. We're going to stand clearly on what God's Word says. But we can't say, well, this is a taboo topic. We don't want to offend anybody. Let the truth do what the truth will do. People will respond accordingly. And then here's my third point in the opening discussion here. There's a void of contextual understanding when challenged by the movement. All three of the quotes that I'm going to read to you at certain times in our study this morning, all three of them were written before 1970. This is to tell you that these arguments are not contemporary to the 2000s. It's not something that was written last year. This has been going on for years and years and years. One of the earliest quotes I have in here is from 1947 on a biblical theological scholar Trying to twist what Genesis 19:4 through11 says. And folks, he doesn't try. He actually does it. As a matter of fact, this guy, his name is Sherwin Bailey, he was influential in changing Britain's laws towards homosexuality. He single-handedly, through his writing and twisting of the scripture, got an entire nation to accept something that God says is, is abhorrent and should not be done. How does that happen? Weak leaders. Weak leaders in our communities and in our churches. All right, so we're going to take a look this morning, and then we're going to continue this evening because there's a lot to discuss, and I don't want to jam in something for the sake of time. But we're going to start and study this morning on homosexuality and the Old Testament. We're going to start with Sodom and Gomorrah, so I'd like you to take your Bibles and go to page 29. This is in Genesis chapter 19, verses 4 through 11. The first study that we're going to do today comes down to defining terms. When I went to Bible college, I learned the importance of vocabulary, okay? You can use a big word or you can read a big word, and if you don't know what the word means, you're missing something in the sentence. And so it was a healthy habit as I would read textbooks that I would highlight with one color and then I would have the word defined and then I'd go back to that word and I'd overlay it with a different color so that I know At some point in the past, you didn't know this word, you found the definition, and you knew what it was. So if you have forgotten it, it'll be easier to remember it the second time because you're learning it for the second time. This is so important with even how we read the Word of God. Now, what we're going to look at in this passage, I think, is very easily refuted, but the challenge that comes from this passage is that one word, it means this a large majority of the time, and the way you, evangelical Christians, are using it, it only means it a very small portion of time. How do we understand how, uh, the meaning of a basic word? How it's used in context? This is why my third point that we just looked at, why I'm doing this address, is because there's a lack of contextual understanding. You can pull... So, you, can, you can right now, if I were to give you 10 verses to show me that works were necessary for salvation, you could find 10 verses out of context to support whatever you want, whatever you want. But that's not how we read books. Go find your favorite novel and read read one sentence from each chapter. Have you gotten the full understanding of the book? It's so, it's, it's funny to me that the way we read website articles and theological journals and science data and all that, we read it in proper context. Oh, but when it comes to the Bible, we can cherry pick all day long. Well, don't you know it says right here about mixed fabrics? We're all going to hell, I guess. (laughs) Folks, what's the context? Has there been anything after that to explain where we are now? But don't expect people to just go along with this. You need to know it, though, so that when you're challenged on it, you can say, no, no, there's something that you're missing. And how you choose to say that is on you. But let's take a look here. We'll read, starting in Genesis chapter 19, verses 4 through 11. But before they lay down, the men of the the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed uh, around the house, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. Now, the first three verses here talk about there were two angels that came into Sodom and they were lodging with Lot. They said, no, we will not stay in your home. We'll stay in the streets. Lot encouraged them to get in the house He changed their mind, they went into the house, and now there is a mob around the house, and there is a claim that is said in verse 5 of the mob. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. Now this is very important for you to underline, mark, because we're going to come back to this word, K-N-O-W, and we're going to see how it is properly defined in context, Even though it has (coughs) three different uses in the Old Testament, what's the use here? How do we find that out? Context. Verse 6. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door (coughs) after him and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. This is your first context clue. You should have already underlined that we may know them, and now we have an explanation of the kind of knowing they want to do what is it lot says do not sow." what is their plea we want to know these guys lot is saying do not attempt to know these guys so wickedly okay that's our first context clue now let me just say this can i have your eyes up here please lot is described in the new testament as a man who was righteous and vexed his soul He's a very, 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 very weak Christian. He could not have a righteous soul vexed if he was not saved. Okay, we do not have some righteous soul in us at birth that's waiting to be awakened. We are born spiritually separated from God. You're going to see here the vile and wicked offering that comes from Lot But he's offering it because the alternative is much worse. So we're going to see that. He's not right in doing this. But you'll see how he responds. Verse 8. Behold now, I have two daughters which have, mark this please, not known a man. This is context clue number two. What's number one? Do not sow wickedly. Number two, my daughters have not known a man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and you, context clue number three, do ye to them as is good in your eyes, only unto these men do nothing, context clue number four, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And they said again, stand back, and they said again, this one fellow came into sojourn, that means he's a stranger, he's not a resident of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he will needs be a judge. Now we will deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hand, pulled Lot into the house to them, shut the door, and they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. That, section of scripture that we just looked at is is very hotly contested amongst the pro-homosexual theological movement. Is there such a thing like I told you, the first thing I'm going to read to you today is from the early, or excuse me, the late 40s. This is not a new thing, this interpretation. But we need to first look at some things here. You got a word up there. Yes, it is a word. I can't say it, but I know the English version of it This is the Hebrew word for K-N-O-W, okay? And you've got it up here on the screen. I know this might be hard to see, so can we maybe dim the lights just a little bit uh, back there? Or maybe get this row of lights turned off. The Hebrew word on the left here is the word that we find in the original manuscripts, okay? Then you have the English translated word, which is right over there, K-N-O-W, all right? This is how Bible translators work, okay? They They look at a word, and they say, this is what that word means. Then they look at the context, and they say, how does this word fit into context? Because this word, no, has three different uses in the Old Testament specifically, and you need to take a look at it up here. They are in no particular order, but it is as follows. Number one, to get acquainted with, to get get acquainted with. That was Jesse when he was tired. This is Jesse now editing that out to get get acquainted with to have knowledge of and we would never we don't use this language today but just because we don't use this language today doesn't mean it wasn't relevant for the time in which it was used because the translators obviously had enough working knowledge to say that there also is a use of this hebrew word that is translated as k-n-o-w that means to have intercourse with well that's not fair well folks it's the Word of God. This is how the Word is used. So here's where the argument comes up. Well, it's used 943 times in the Old Testament, and only 12 times does it come up as intercourse. So, let me read to you the explanation from the pro-homosexual theological movement. This, this guy's name is Bailey. Okay, this is a great paper. I had to pay $5 for this, which I just think is crazy. You know, this should be, we live in a world, you know, anyway. Bailey believes that much of Christian prejudice against homosexuality is the result of misunderstanding the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. This is how they view you who say homosexuality is wrong today. They say you have a misunderstanding of Genesis 19. He argues that the men of Sodom were anxious to interrogate the strangers to find out if they were spies. Therefore... I, I know, but you need, you need to hear this because this is, this is uh, considered scholastic and solid. Therefore, he argues, the story does not refer to homosexuality at all. The sin involved was not homosexuality, but gang rape. Okay? I want you to take note of that because, in a sense, that is what they would have done, but this is why it's significant to see what Lot offered in place of that. Lot had angered these residents by receiving foreigners whose credentials had not been examined. And the reason, the verse they use for that, I want you to see it, is in verse 9. They say, stand back, and they said again, this one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. That's speaking about Lot there. Now we will, get, we will deal worse with, uh, with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even a lot, and came near to break the door. They used this, verse 9, to say, They were concerned that because Lot was a foreigner, he did not have rights in the the community as a citizen to bring people in. So we're going to deal worse with him, Lot, than we would with those two guys. The men were angered by this omission and were showing extreme discourtesy to these visitors by demanding to know their credentials. Bailey, Sherman Bailey, the one who wrote and established this theology here, argues that the demand of the men of Sodom to know the strangers in Lot's house meant nothing more than their desire to get acquainted with them. You want, this is how this happens, because homosexuality is wrong. The Bible says that it is wrong. But there is an attempt to change the definition of the word. It's used 943 times in the Old Testament. We can't say it's only used 12 times as intercourse, so why would we throw that into here? Because that is the word that fits the context. And we'll look at that in a moment. The problem, argues Bailey, was nothing more than inhospital, uh, excuse me, inhospitality. They just weren't being nice. Others, including Blair, this is Ralph Blair, he wrote later in the 70s, have expanded on this argument. This is a direct quote from the commentary. The, uh, the biblical story demands the seriousness with which these eastern people took the important customs of oriental hospitality. It appears that, if necessary, they would even allow their own daughters to undergo abuse in order to protect guests. The sexual aspect of the story is simply the vehicle in which the subject of demanded hospitality is conveyed. They cannot get away from a sexual aspect, yet, I want you to see the flaw here, they do not say the word no is translated as intercourse. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. The word no here is either translated to have intercourse with or it is translated as to get acquainted with. There would be no need for sexual abuse to even be brought up by Bailey if they were not taking into the account that they cannot get away from the fact that sexual abuse was being discussed. Are you with me this morning? They try to pull the wool over your eyes. And for many of us, they're they're doing it. And I don't mean the homosexual. I'm saying these theological writers. People look at this and go, oh. Because now instead of telling people that they're wrong, they don't have to tell people that they're wrong. You can just keep doing what you're doing. The Hebrew word for no, Bailey points out, can be translated to get acquainted with, to have knowledge of, to have intercourse with. The word no appears 943 times in the Old Testament. Only 12 times does it mean to have intercourse with. He also states that intercourse, as a means of personal knowledge, depends on more than the act of sex. Therefore, he argues, the circumstances in Sodom could not fit the sexual connotation of the word no. He concludes by reasoning from the fact that Lot was a resident foreigner. As such, he had exceeded his rights by receiving two foreigners whose credentials had not been examined. So the question now becomes, this is the argument, okay? They have met, they think, they have met their burden of proof. Does the context speak against what they say? It does. And I want you to look at the first context clue. If we remove the word no as to have sexual intercourse with and replace it with to get acquainted, does it meet all four of the context clues satisfactorily? Let's take a look. Luke chapter, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 19 and verse 4. Uh, excuse me, verse 5 is where they say that we may know them. Lot went out at the door unto them, shut the door after him. Context clue number one. And said, I pray you, brethren, do not sow wickedly. Would it be a wicked thing to ask to get acquainted with somebody? If I went down to you this morning and said, I would like to get acquainted with you, would you meet me with your constitutional carry right? (laughs) No. How about the second definition, to get to know? If I went down to you and said, I would like to get to know you in a friendly way, is that considered to be something wicked? Now, it may be uncomfortable for people because they're introverts, and I get that. But is it, does that meet the response that Lot says? I think that the context demands that it is no. So it fails the first context test. Number two. Behold now, I have two daughters which have not known a man. Now, stop for a moment. If the word no means to get acquainted with or to get to know somebody... Would Lot be able to make that statement accurately? No. They know dad. That's a man. I mean, you know. <laughs> why then would it mean anything about acquaintance or knowledge? And why would he rather prefer his daughters be gotten to know, you know, get to know people, get acquainted with people in a wicked manner? It, it fails the second context clue continue, let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you and you do as do ye to them as is good in your eyes. That's the third context clue. Is there any case so far, any evidence to produce that these men wanted to wickedly get acquainted with in a non-sexual way with those two strangers? No, Lot had to change those angels' minds so that they would stay in lodging with him. And the fourth context clue. Uh, only these men do nothing. So we have failed all four of the context clues when we use to get acquainted with or to get to know. The very plain, very basic interpretation, without twisting Scripture, folks. That's what's happening here. We are going to the Hebrew defin. Excuse me. These theologians go to the Hebrew definition and they say you're too stupid. I'm smarter let me do what you can't do, and they twist it, and you go, mmm, that's good. And you believe it. The only definition here, it is one of the 12 times in which the word know is translated to have intercourse with, because that is the exact intent of these men. And the second context clue tells you that. Look at the beginning of verse 8. Behold now I have two daughters which have not known a man. You take that, with their request in verse 5 and in verse 4 that there were more than one person, Lot, in his mind. This is why I say he's a wicked man. He, he was not a good example of a Christian. But he knew, he knew very clearly that the act of homosexuality is worse than his daughters being raped. That's a... I don't... That is, still, you would not offer, you would think you would not offer your daughters, but in his mind, he would rather have his daughters defiled than homosexuality be committed. That should tell you something very important. And now, I'm going to shed light on something that helps us understand exactly what the word no means from the Bible itself. Don't you like that? Context is the key. Look in Jude 7, please, on page 1328 in the Church Loan Bible. You can let Genesis go. I spent a lot of time on that context key. <laughs> Just kidding. But it is the key here. I think we have sufficiently looked at the translation of the word no, meaning to have intercourse with in Genesis nineteen four through 11. Now, we have a wonderful, excellent explanation of exactly what happened in Genesis 19, 4-11 in Jude chapter 1. By the way, if you have more than one chapter in Jude, please turn your Bibles in at the end of the (laughs) service. I'd like to examine it, hold it for a little bit, maybe a lifetime, not sure. 13.28, you are there with me now. Jude chapter 1 and verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner. Okay, who's the subject? Sodom and Gomorrah, and, secondarily, cities in like manner. What is the charge? Giving themselves over to stop. This Greek word we're about to read is called pornea. There is no wiggle room with what that word means. It's sexual intercourse fornication and furthermore than that going after strange flesh are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire fire sodom and gomorrah was consumed they were totally consumed with fire that same fire that consumed sodom and gomorrah will in context consume these false teachers who do not change their mind and put their trust in a coming messiah they probably won't because they're set on that. This is their meat for the belly. But you have, without a, sh- excuse me, without a shadow of a doubt, you have a very clear explanation of Genesis 19. You cannot look at the word no only in the Old Testament and not pay attention to the very clear New Testament characterization of those actions. The men in Sodom and Gomorrah were fornicators. They went after strange flesh and in their attempt to bust into the Lot's house, they had the intent to commit sexual acts with those men. Period. I don't care how many times we define the word no as to get acquainted with. It can't mean it there. It cannot. I want you to look at a couple of things before we continue here. But I want you to first look in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Genesis chapter two and verse eighteen. It's page number eight. We just got from page thirteen twenty eight. Now we're on page eight. That's kind of crazy. Starting in verse eighteen, then we'll read twenty one through twenty four. And the Lord God said, "It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet. I will make." him and help meet for him 21 and the lord god caused a deep sleep to fall upon adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof and the rib which the lord god had taken from man made he a woman okay this is very important and brought her unto the man And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, therefore, the conclusion of all of this, what's the purpose? Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. This is the way that God has set up sex. Now, we have to have just a very pointed conversation here. The way that man and woman's bodies are designed is to be improper union. But there is a covenant that must be established first between the man, the woman, and God before that sex is honored. I am not the kind of person who thinks in the home, children in the home, should be taught that sex is a bad thing. When kids learn that sex is only bad, they will develop unhealthy views towards sex towards their mate when they're older. This is why when pastors, weak-minded teachers, get up and rant and rave about sex, but they never talk about how God designed it, it does significantly more damage than it does any benefit. If you tell kids to do as you say because you told them without backing up what God says, as soon as you're gone, that's gone too. It's a very weak-minded way to parent. And I'm telling you, my wife and I take our role as parents extremely seriously because we know that we have a chance to raise our daughter to make a willful decision to obey God rather than the world. If I say do as I say just because I've said without any backing up in my words and in my actions, hello, I better live what I'm telling her to do. As soon as she's out of the home, she has no accountability to God because the only accountability she had was to mom and dad. And that's that's when the world gets in. Oh, sex feels great. Don't worry about it. You know, you want to make sure you and your mate, when you finally, you know, you hear it, settle down. You know what it means to settle down? At one point, you were riled up. At one point, you were out of control, and now you've settled down. You want, we're telling our kids to go be out of control, sexually. I had a guidance counselor in high school that I think incorrectly, in an attempt to try and change my mind of my standards on sex, said, well, you know, when you get to college, you'll learn a lot of things. And there was no, it was an innuendo, of course, but I knew exactly what he was talking about. Is that a conversation we're looking for guidance counselors to have? You know why they say that? Because a lot of parents don't talk about sex properly in the home. That's why the movement today is saying we've got to teach them in kindergarten and in health class and stuff. That's a discussion for the parents. Sex is a great thing. Sex is a great thing that God has designed for one man and one woman under the sanctity of marriage. Now, this is God. He's saying this way before the law. Now look in Matthew chapter 19. This is a passage where Jesus is speaking about divorce. He's asked a question by the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 19. Starting in verses 4 through 6. And ye have answered, uh, excuse me, and he answered and said unto them. By the way, the question was, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They're trying to catch him. Matter of fact, you can see that, by the way. Uh, Isn't there a verse in the Bible that says, tempt not the Lord thy God? Do you see how the Pharisees break that in verse 3? Look what it says. The Pharisees also came to him in complete innocence and willingness of mind. Now, what were they doing? They're trying to trip him. And they said, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read? These are people who are supposed to know the law, which is very similar to what we... It's the exact thing that we just read in Genesis. That uh, that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. By the way, there is no support here for anything outside of that. You need to know this. So anything that is added as like a third or fourth or 50th gender, is adding on to what God has already said is done. They're male and female. That's how He created them. "...and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain together shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh, What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Government does not institute marriage. Government, in obedience with God's already declared word, chooses to obey and protect what God said is correct. I do not look to the state of Florida to honor my relationship with Kyla. My relationship with Kyla is a covenant that I made with God and her that I would only be with her. The state of Florida does not back that up. If this state disappears, I'm not now in sin by being with my wife. Do you understand this? Because a lot of people don't. And this is why people go, well, it's okay now. Same-sex marriage is okay. It's against what God instituted. Okay, So we have to now have a very plain discussion. Who is correct? This is why the Methodist church has made three buckets. Because they look at the bucket that goes against same-sex marriage and they say, oh, that wasn't relevant. That, that was relevant for them, but it's not relevant for today. So we crumble it up and throw it away. That's dangerous and people are doing that. That's where we are today. There was a, there was a lady, I think her name is Chloe. She was raised as a tomboy, you know, liked to do boy things and she was mutilated by doctors to change her gender. She's she has now since changed her mind. She is trying to be a woman again. She, By her own words, she says, I am a monster now. This is heartbreaking. She gets up, she speaks in front of our elected officials, and people walk out. Folks, that should tell you where the agenda is today. And it's not some crazy conspiracy, and it's not because we don't love people. In fact, it is because we love people. But the devil is trying to do everything that he can to change the order in which God has established. Oh, it's just a little twist here. It's just a little twist there. And now, something that started, you know, a long time ago, we're now sitting here in 2023, and I would be considered the extremist for even having a message of this title. I'm the extremist. That's a a very dangerous position to be in. Okay, so now let's look at the Mosaic Law. All right, we are running a little short on time. But let's take a look at Leviticus eighteen twenty two and then we'll look at uh, chapter 20 and verse thirteen. Oh boy, this is where the knives come out with a lot of this discussion, okay I'm going to read to you these passages we're going to the first one is on page one hundred and fifty one, the next one one fifty three. Leviticus eighteen and verse twenty two. Very clearly now this is the institution of the, the 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 priestly code okay this is important the priests are giving this out or excuse me this is given to the priest and it's supposed to be expected of the people verse 22 says thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind there's no what does this mean i'm curious i don't understand it's very clear a man should not be sexually involved with another man in the way that he should be with a woman only okay that's homosexual behavior and it says it the act of this behavior is abomination look in verse 20 or excuse me chapter 20 in verse 13 if a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman both of them have committed an abomination and they surely be put to de- and they shall surely be put to death their blood shall be upon them god took this very seriously By the way, this was not the only thing in the Old Testament code that brought forth immediate stoning. Rebellious children also qualified. And some would say, oh, God is so harsh. No, no, God knows the wickedness of man. Look at the the consequences of a generation of parents who have not raised their kids properly. Look where we are today how much shame children are bringing to their parents. You think God knew what he was doing when he instituted these things? I think, excuse me, I don't think so. I know so. So here's the explanation of these two verses, okay? I want you to pay attention to this because this is a little heady, but we can understand it if you just follow along. Pro-homosexual advocates usually dismiss these passages, Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus twenty and thirteen, by relegating them to simple religious prohibitions rather than taking them as moral prohibitions. Ralph Blair explains his line of reasoning. Here's what they say. When they, when they see the verse right here that says homosexual behavior is an abomination, this is how they explain it away. That the very pronounced Old Testament judgment against a man's having sexual relations with another man is included in the priestly holiness code of Leviticus is significant because the concern of the priests was one of ritual purity. So this is the question that I have, and it's on the screen. Is the context teaching ritual purity only? What does this mean? The priests were of a very exclusive class in Israel they were supposed to be supported by the rest of the nation. There were things that they could not do, could not say, clothes that they could not wear. They had to be ceremonially clean, physically. They would have to take a bath and watch how they would walk into the next set of offerings. In the Holy of Holies, only the high priest was to go in. And if he was not properly clean, they got a rope around your your boy's foot just in case God said, you're not right. And they drag him out. Not to resuscitate him either, to bury him. That's how seriously God took the role of these priests. But the explanation that's being offered to you by the pro-homosexual theological movement is that this act of homosexuality was only discussed in regards to ritual purity and not moral purity. Stop for a moment. We cannot pick out verse 22 without looking at 20. 21 and 23, on this argument, you would have to say that the other things in this passage were also only for ritual purity, but they did not matter in regards to moral purity. Let us look, shall we? Leviticus chapter 18, 22 is told you to say that is only for ritual purity. Let's look at 20. Moreover, thou shalt not lie carnally with thy neighbor's wife to defile thyself with her. That's also, they would say, only ritual purity. 21. And thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire of Molech. What does it mean for your seed to pass through the child of Molech? May I have your eyes for a moment so that I can be very clear when I say this? That is abortion. Very clearly, that is abortion. And folks, they were killing children when they were already born. Our country and most of our world says it is an inherent right for people to kill them in the womb. It should be the safest place. God says not to do it. Now, does that mean oh, he's only talking about the priests here. The priests can't abort. Does that make sense? No. Because he's not talking about simply ritual purity. He's talking also, you should be ritually pure because that's the moral standard. Hello. What happened with Solomon? Took down the altars of Jehovah and set up the altars of Molech, Ashtaroth, Chemoth, Chemosh, excuse me. You think God was just like, well, you know, not a moral error, but I can't use him as a priest now. Solomon was removed and his children were prophesied to split the kingdom and they did. And there was wickedness that ruled in the land. The lamentations of Jeremiah is Jeremiah hearing the murder and torture of the children of Israel specifically of the women and children because of their sins. You cannot we cannot split these things. But is there anything in the New Testament to teach us otherwise? There is, but let me Let me finish with this guy's reading so you can fully hear their point. From this priestly point of view, it is clear that above all else, Israel was to be uncontaminated by her pagan neighbors. In all things, she was to remain a separate, pure vessel unto the Lord. At this time, male prostitutes in the temple of the Canaanites, Babylonians, and other neighboring peoples were common features of their pagan rites. There, it is understandable that this homosexuality connected with the worship of false gods would certainly color Israel's perspective on any and all homosexual activity. But he would have to reason from his very statement that he just made. He would have to say, but it's okay for them to do it in the privacy of their own home. They're not worried about ritual purity. It's okay for them to do it in home. Is that consistent with the teaching that we're looking at today? No, it's not consistent, consistent with the word either. And I'm going to show you that in a moment. Blair and those who follow this line of thinking assume that ritual purity and moral preaching are always distinct. They have to separate it. So then they'll go to the the prophets and they'll say, well, none of them mention homosexuality, so therefore it's not wrong because the prophets were teaching morally and the priests were teaching ritually. Oh, you're going to see some things about the priests and the Pharisees and and it's going to rock the boat. Therefore, the passages in Leviticus, they argue, are not speaking against homosexuality as such, but only against identifying with the practice of alien religions. That, I am not a very educated man, but that'll make any sense to me. That's a big this. Circular reasoning. You mean, God says in order for you to be holy, you can't do it, but if you want to be, you don't have to worry about it if it's in your own home and and you're not a priest, it'll make no sense. The issue was religious identity, not the righteousness of God. That's what they say. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to go to Matthew chapter 23 and verses 27 through 28. Boy, the the train is moving quickly here, folks. And I, I hope you can understand my tone today. I have prayed profusely, and I kid you not, I have prayed profusely about this message because I think it is so important. It will come under attack on YouTube, it will come under attack on all these different places. And I don't care because I want people to see that they have been deceived. They have been deceived into, in, into believing their actions are justified by God. They are not. And because I love people and I don't want people to go to hell, I, I need them to understand that Jesus has paid for this sin fully and completely, but that it should not be practiced by the believer. It should not, because God has said very clearly, not only in the Old Testament, but he says it in the New as well. Uh, Matthew chapter 23 is on page 1032, looking in verses 27 through 28. This is one of the seven woes that Jesus gives to the scribes, the writers, and the Pharisees, the ones who are administering. Okay, This this is the priestly sector. The same ones that are written in Leviticus 18 and 20, where he says, you need to make sure the people know these things. Does Jesus make a difference here between ritual purity and moral purity? Look what it says. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. You know, I'm going to go to lunch with people, some people afterwards say, and I'm not going to say loving to them, you're a hypocrite, nice to see you. That's a bad thing. That's not something you say to somebody who's doing right, okay? Even, uh, look what it says, for ye are like unto whited sepulchers what's a whited sepulcher it's a polished beautiful grave which indeed appear beautiful outward but within are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness folks this is very clearly i'm going to go back to this statement that i have up here on the screen is the context of, Levit- of leviticus 18:22 and 20:13 moral or ritual purity only Jesus very clearly says that these Pharisees had all the outward appearance of good, but inside they're wicked. Jesus does not separate the ritual purity from the moral purity. As a matter of fact, he says that people will weaponize the outward appearance to disguise their inward desires. And that's exactly what's happening with these pro-homosexual theological discussions. They are trying to say that outwardly we can appear righteous while inwardly doing something that God has said is wrong. And they look at you and I and they say, you just don't know the real understanding of the word. Jesus tells these men who are actively in the position of administering the sacrifices and bringing people to a right standing with God, all as a picture of himself, while on the inside they are sinners if we use the argument of the pro-homosexuals theological movement and we say well they're good ritually then what jesus is saying here would be wrong you'd have to call him the hypocrite but they don't go to these passages why because you can't bend it it's clear You can't twist it to say something it does not say. Look at verse 28. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Ooh. How's that for a Sunday morning Bible study? Y'all look good, smell good, but inside we're rotting corpses. God bless you. Make sure you hit the offering plate on the way out. You know that, that's not a message that's going to be. Oh man, I was really encouraged at church today. But folks, this is what we do when we justify sin. When we say it's not a problem. And I know many of us probably have relationships, familial, on a working and uh, you know, on a coworker level, with people who practice homosexuality. You need to understand that they have sought for answers for what they feel. And they have been met with this stuff. And they're told that people like you, who do not condone it, you're the ones who are not up with the times. Well, you know what? To a certain extent, that's right. Because the times are changing what God has already said. Clearly. I'm going to stick with what God said. I want you to stick with that as well. But not because, well, my pastor said, so if you have a question, please call him. Okay, look. I appreciate it calendar's getting real full and you can do this and let me say you should be able to do this you you should know these things because if if you don't you're just going to be used to continue to support this agenda all right last thing the reverence of the law i'm going to read to you this claim and then because we're short on time go to first thessalonians 4 so we can be ready to take a look I've heard this one so many times, so many times, to the point where I have to control myself from rolling my eyes because it just, it, it, it does not make sense. But it is the prominent, I've actually heard this on like Fox and CNN of people that get up there, there's these religious experts that try to make you and I who stand on God's word look like the fools. Stop me if you've heard this before. Pro-homosexual advocates spend much effort and time trying to show the irrelevance... Uh, of the law to christians today quote they'll say consistency and fairness would seem to dictate that if the israel holiness code which is just a fancy way of saying the law of moses i don't get all that but is to be invoked against 20th century homosexuals it should likewise be invoked against such common practices as eating rare steak wearing mixed fabrics uh Blair continues to write in this way, It is interesting how lightly evangelicals have taken other proscriptions found in the Old Testament, rules against eating rabbit, oysters, clams, shrimp, and lobster, and rare steaks. Evangelicals do not picket or try to close down seafood restaurants, nor do we keep coaster kitchens. We do not always order steaks well done. We eat pork and ham. The wearing of clothes made from interwoven linen and wool does not seem to bother us at all. Evangelicals do not say in accordance with those same laws of cultic purification, that those who practice homosexual activity should be executed as prescribed. I'm going to stop right there because we don't have time, but may I say very clearly here, the destruction in Sodom of Gomorrah was something that came well before the institution of the law. Well before it. There is a code in the Mosaic Law that has now been done away with because we have Jesus Christ But the condemnation of homosexual behavior came before the law, it was condemned in the law, and it is advised against after the law. Wearing mixed fabrics, eating rabbit, which is not my cup of tea, but all of those things, for a specific purpose, God put them in the law. Most likely because it was an identification with pagan practices in the outside culture of Israel, they are all done away with, as far as a moral excuse me, as far as a ritual code, now because we have Jesus Christ. But fornication, pornea, hetero, uh, hetero or, or homosexual, is still taught against. So don't let, don't let that scare you, as into now you have to wear, you, know, a bedsheet everywhere. And follow the rules of the Old Testament. This argument is working. It makes us close our mouths because they, man, these guys are theologians. I'm in real trouble. Look in First Thessalonians. We're there in verse four, verses. Or excuse me, uh, First Thessalonians, chapter four, verses one through eight. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is on His authority that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For your Christian growth, for fruit to be abounding to your account, do these things, for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Again, on his authority. For this is the will of God, the Father, even your sanctification, your progressive sanctification here in this life, that you should abstain from pornea. It does not say heteropornea only and that the homosexual one is fine. It says all fornication. What is fornication? Any kind of sexual act that occurs outside of one man and one woman in the structure of marriage. Any kind. Masturbation included. That every one of you, verse 4, should know how to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also have forewarned you and testified, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, this... This thing of fornication is told by God after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on Christ's authority to be unclean. You would have to really convince me of something other than what this says because it says very clearly what it is. And those of us who are put of our trust in Christ, we are the payment for that sin has already been applied. We should not continue there in it. But he's called us unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth despiseth not man but god who hath also given unto us his holy spirit you got the you got all three here the father the son and the holy spirit but it's very important to note here that the people who reject this teaching and do it do not come against you they come against god and we know from other places in scripture that all sin will be totally destroyed in the fires of hell which burn forever forever so for believers there should, there ought not be an exemption for a homosexual believer. It's sin. Just as much as it is a sin for people to be in a sexual relationship between a man and a woman that's not honored by marriage, that is also a sin. You can close your Bibles here. We'll turn the lights back on. I'm going to read to you this last statement. Trent, can you grab that light there? Thank you. We're going to continue our study tonight. We're going to take a break from the Believer Beware series. I want to finish this. We've looked at homosexuality in the Old Testament. We'll look at it in the New Testament tonight. Lots of good information there to come as well. The author of this study, which was written in 1983, I can't pronounce the guy's last name. He says this, What this all means is that the commands dealing with homosexuality in Leviticus 18.23 and Leviticus 20.13 are still highly relevant because they have been reincorporated into the New Testament code of conduct for believers. A moral unity exists between the Old and the New Testaments. It is always wrong to murder, to rape, steal, and to what the Bible says to have sexual relations with animals. And sexual relations with persons of the same sex and any sex that is outside of marriage. God has dealt with people in different ways at different times. Listen to this, please. But his standard for righteousness has not changed. Look, this is why the shed blood of Jesus Christ is so good, it meets the perfection. I stand before God totally justified. Because the blood has been applied. By faith, I put my trust in Jesus Christ. God did not lower his standard of righteousness to meet the standards of a wicked and perverse world. But that's what is that is what is ultimately the conclusion if we allow homosexual behavior to be approved by the church. We're saying God has lowered his standard. He hasn't. He's unchangeable. If morality has changed, if the standard has been lowered, then the character of God has changed because the basis of morality is in the character of God who is immutable. So if we say that God's standard has changed, then we say to the effect that the offering for sin on the cross has also been changed. That there is one sin that is no longer a sin that jesus paid for but he didn't need to you see how dangerous that becomes we become we begin to be the ones who say what is right and what is wrong this is why when you look at the end of joshua and you get into judges it's a very haunting verse but it says every man did that which was right in his own eyes what's to say if it's right in another man's eyes to take the life of somebody else that he's not wrong you get enough people to get a consensus that murder is okay, now all of a sudden murder is okay. And they'd have to twist the scripture again as they have with this issue. We're already experiencing this with abortion, folks. I very plainly have become a almost a a, a single issue voter when it comes to abortion. I cannot, especially as someone who has adopted a child and no The very strong possibility of these kids that do not find parents is that they are killed. I cannot stand with a person who will say that's okay, and I won't. And yes, I am emotional in that, because I I believe God says it's wrong. I love hearing the kids in the nursery. God bless it. And I think that's a serious issue. They've already done it to abortion, and it's coming after this issue next. United Methodist Church is splitting because they are allowing pastors and deacons and elders who practice homosexuality to be in the church. There is there's a whole LGBT creed now that that people will recite. Saying that God I'm not even gonna say it. Because it's just it's just not right. It's not right. But you know how they get there? This got twisted, and nobody said anything about it. So yes, I know, the, I know the message topic is uncomfortable, and it's not my intent for you to be uncomfortable. I want you to have comfort that what you believe is not some fringe, out-of-date uh, practice, okay? the you, you believe and are in line with God's Word, amen? You need to know that and be confident in it. And when you do run across somebody that wants to be... uh you know, violent towards you and and, and wants to persecute you and stuff, know that as you go through that persecution, you take part in the persecution the Lord Jesus suffered in. Paul said he desired that. We still are commanded to love people. And people need to know, regardless of what your sin is, Jesus is the Savior. And when we start saying that, the Holy Spirit works in concert To help bring people to a change of mind. But when we teach a message that is not in line with the love of Jesus Christ, we only keep those people from trusting in Him. That's that's why we need to make sure we preach the gospel and know it. If I had a chance to address people, I would tell them, God has paid for all of your sin. And all He asks for you to do is not turn from that sin... Because you cannot do that and inherit eternal life. You must trust in His Son that He died on that cross in your place. The moment that you do, you are passed from death unto life. Now, because you are a signed, sealed, and delivered child of God, do not sin. First John 2, 1 John 2.1 says that. And if you do sin, we have an advocate in the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This hand to represent you and me, my wallet to represent... Sin this hand to represent Jesus Christ. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever in a place called hell. We have to be absolutely perfect, just like God, and we all fall short. And there's no amount of good works that can pay for this sin. Because the only payment that is accepted is the shedding of blood and death. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us. There's a beautiful hymn Hallelujah, what a Savior. Man of sorrows, what a name. The Son of God who came. Ruin sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. For God so loved the world, that's you and me, that he gave his only begotten Son, that's Jesus Christ, that whosoever, anybody, even a practicing homosexual, anybody, whosoever, believeth in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. People have a hard time with that. Well, guess what? Homosexual behavior is just as bad as that little white lie that you told. That's what Revelation 21-27 uh, says. He that worketh a liar worketh an abomination. They're all separated. We all need Jesus, amen? amen? And we can have him when we believe on that death, ground, resurrection, the shedding of his blood. We receive as a free gift everlasting life. Well, that's not fair. That's grace, folks. If God can save the worst of us, he can save the best of us. Hello? How is it done? Trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're listening today and you want to get saved, you just simply believe on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the moment you do, you're saved. I don't feel any different. Jesus says you're passed from death unto life and you'll never be brought into condemnation. You keep thinking on that, you'll start feeling a little different. You feel good, happy. Happy. Please join us here tonight, whether in person or on the live stream, as we'll continue our study. Will you go to the, will you bow your heads and close your eyes, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer. If you're here today and that message makes sense to you and you would like to know that you're going to heaven, would you simply write where you sit, put your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Friend, he loves you. In spite of all your sin and shame, he still, while you were yet sinners, he died for you. And it's my personal plea that you will put your trust in him. All the other stuff we can figure out as we walk together. But I want to make sure that you know you're going to heaven. Is there anyone that would say, Pastor, please pray for me. I just trusted Jesus Christ. I know I'm going to heaven. Would you pray for me? I certainly would. Would you lift your hand up and let me know? The same invitation is there on the internet. If you would just write to us, we will pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and that we can stand on it. Bring us back here safely. As we study again your word tonight, thank you, Lord, for loving us and not asking us to change because we could never do enough. Thank you so much for giving us this wonderful news to share with the world. In Jesus' name, we pray these things.